0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: I don't know that this next story should be shocking to anybody, but maybe it is. Uh, Many people have received COVID. Well, most people, I guess, in this country have had their COVID vaccinations And a bunch have had a booster shot or even a flu vaccine, but 40% of the population of Canada does not plan to get an updated shot this fall, according to a new Ipsos poll done for Global News. I want to bring in Sean Simpson. He's the vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs. Joins us now. Sean, how are you today? Well, thank you. Appreciate you doing this. And and as I say, maybe I should be surprised by this, but I, I'm actually maybe surprised that it's only 40% of people who may be getting to the point of saying, yeah, you know, I think I'm kind of done. And, and, and again, maybe that's being, I don't know, cynical or something like that, but boy, with all the talk of all the people who are hesitant or have concerns or whatever else, I'm kind of surprised it's only 40%. Well,
2: uh, two things. One is that your level of surprise uh, likely has something to do with age. Ooh. So, the older you are, the more surprised you may be at uh, the fact that younger people simply aren't too keen to be getting the booster shots. And if you're young, you're maybe perhaps surprised that older people are so keen to get them. There's really a fault <laughs> line in this country, it's around the age of 55. Uh, if you're older than that, about three quarters either have or intend to get the booster shots and flu shots. And if you're under 55, only about half either intend to get or already have uh, received them. So um, we've got a situation of... of uh you know, two different groups of people acting very differently towards COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I got to tell you, Sean, you, you had no idea. I, I, you are so good. You, I am right on the fault line. You picked the number. <laughs> uh, like, if you wanted to build your credibility, you just did it with one number there. You <laughs> nailed it. Way to go. Amazing. amazing. Um, okay, so, but this is this is something that I think, again, depending on where you fall in this, this is then either very concerning that people aren't getting it, or very surprising, as you say, that people are so eager to line up and get this. Why, why would it be, why would older people be surprised that younger people don't, I guess is, because that's what you said, right? Older people are surprised that younger people aren't.
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, because they, they perceive um, personal danger, personal threat from the virus and want to uh, protect themselves. Um, And they don't understand why younger people wouldn't um, also take the option not just to protect themselves, but then to protect older people uh, as well. And I think younger people from the data are saying, you know, look, we did our job with double vaccines, Uh, 85% of of Canadians supported mandatory vaccinations. They got their, their vaccines. But now what we're seeing among people who aren't intending to get their vaccines Uh, either this feeling that it's not worth it either because they, you know, got the vaccinations, but still got COVID or got COVID and, for them, it wasn't, you know, terribly serious. Um, or, uh, you know, a quarter of the people who say they're not going to get it um, say they simply don't feel safe getting uh, uh, the booster shot. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's some growing hesitancy out there. There is the uh, a belief, you know, when is it going to end? Is it Do I have to get mm. this shot now every six months, every year? Is that good for me? Is that OK for me? Um, and then you've got a, a fairly small proportion, but still visible at 7% of those who won't get it, who say they're just, you know, anti-vaccine. So it's not a huge number running around or anti-vaccine there, but there's a definitely significant number who are anti this vaccine.
1: I One of the things that I was waiting to hear was that when you're breaking it down, the younger people may be more um, internet or, or social media involved. And that's where a lot of the stories and things come about the problems with it. And I I don't know if that's it or not. I don't know because, you know, they tend to, are they more savvy or less savvy? I don't know. I I don't know now online, whether we look at younger people and say they're able to read the internet and social media better than older people. I don't know.
2: Yeah. I I think younger people are getting their information from a, a larger sort of plurality of sources Uh, older people more, more in tune with traditional media. And also we've got in our survey older people more likely to say that they pay attention to and then follow the recommendations of government. Younger people much more likely to say, no, nah, government doesn't really have an influence on whether or not I'm, I'm going to get a shot. And I think this is part of the the narrative, the change in the narrative over the last two years or so. When the, the vaccines first came out, there was this belief that it was sort of everyone's civic duty to get a vaccine, not for themselves, but to protect others. And now over the last two years, we've seen, I think, a, a slow but steady progression to uh, the collective, from the collective to the individual, meaning A vaccine is now my personal choice. Um, If we're not all going to do it, then the the benefits to protecting other people are, you know, uh, less obvious. Uh, So it just becomes my own personal choice and many are choosing not to get it. And remember that even though we have 60 percent of Canadians who say that they have got it or intend to get it, you know, intentions can be great, but whether or not everybody follows through with them is a different story. So I suspect that that 60% turns into far fewer once we get to the end of the, of the winter season.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm did, did the poll say which was more likely for people to get the flu vaccine or the COVID vaccine?
2: Yeah, in fact, they were equally likely, sixty percent. So if you are going to get one, you are going to get the other. People are 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 sort of ceasing to differentiate from from the two and saying, "Well, if I get one, why would I not not get the other?" And and for many people, especially younger people, you know, COVID nineteen is no longer sort of an exceptional um, a virus. It's just one of any number of things that that can get me sick. And if I am sick, I may not test because at the end of the day it's inconsequential, uh, people are still going to take the same decisions to stay home from work or school and try to limit their contact with other people who are uh, maybe more susceptible to the
1: to the illness. That is Sean Simpson, vice president of Ipsos Public Affairs and a man who can guess your age, apparently, just uh, uh-huh. by his number. And there you go, Sean. Thank you for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Did you go to a Hamilton Cardinals game this year? And I had asked you that question last year or the year before, or the year before that, or the year before that, you might have looked at me cross-eyed like the, what, sorry, the, there's a, wait, we have a baseball team. Where do they play? Who do they play? What? Never heard of that. Well, the fact that you now probably, I'm assuming know about the Hamilton Cardinals and that there is a reasonable chance that many of you listening did go to a game last year would probably help in a large way explain why my next guest was just awarded the trophy as the intercounty Baseball League 2023 Executive of the Year. His name is Eric Spear and joins me now. How are you, Eric? I'm good, thanks. Hey, congratulations on this. And as I say, it's, um... Just the the mere fact, if we do nothing else, the mere fact that so many more people, it seems in this city and in this area know about your team, that would seem to be enough to win an award like this.
3: Yeah, it was, um, uh, yeah, it was quite the year. We had over 14,000 fans come through the gates, which actually put us third in the league for attendance.
1: And I would bet, and I don't have this in front of me and I could be wrong on this one, but I would bet that the Cardinals... Prior to this year, would have been last or close to last every other year for the previous years and years and years. I don't know if you have those in that those stats handy, but that would that would be my guess. That it's always been near the bottom.
3: Yeah, I don't have statistics to confirm that, but from what I've heard from others around the league, that
1: that's pretty accurate. So, what was the secret? I mean, if you are Bill, and this is we can talk baseball or we can just talk about business, but if 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 you are trying to take a a franchise that, look, there are a lot of people who have had great intentions and have tried very hard to turn this into something, didn't quite work. If you're trying to turn that into something that people watch or care about or attend, what do you do? Where do you start?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, for us, like this time last year, you know, we're really trying to communicate all the things that we wanted to do. And, you know, we were fortunate a lot, of, you know, some people were able to buy into the vision, but a big part of it was trying to create just a better sports experience that you would see, you know, across the city. So that was definitely, you know, the biggest thing. And then, um, you know, having the operations then to support, you know, what we were going to go out and say that we were going to do. So having a, you know, we had a, we have a great, great game day ops staff. that was able to kind of back up, you know, all the entertainment and the the game day experience
1: changes that we were talking about. Does it, does it cost a lot of money to do the things and to get the attention that you were trying to get? Um, I wouldn't say it, it was significant, you know, certainly we made investment in a lot of different areas,
3: but I think a lot of it was a little bit of trial and error, uh, especially on the marketing side. But, um, we consistently ran, you know, advertisements on, on Facebook and Instagram, which helped. And, you know, we were on CHCH uh, every Tuesday morning. Um, you know, so that, that really helped. But, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of it too was also just knocking on doors. You know, we approached, I think over 40 charities across the city. Um, we we're able to get, you know, a lot of those charities out to the out to the games as well. And, you know, that, that
1: didn't cost us anything. It's just to, to reach out and tell people about the game or about the team. How many people did tell you over the course of the year when you would mention that, oh, I'm, you know, with the Hamilton Cardinals or I've now bought the Hamilton Cardinals, whatever. How many people, when you talked to them, you got the sense that they had absolutely no idea what you were talking about?
3: yeah it was it was quite a few um we had a uh, you know we play our games friday nights and sunday afternoons so you know regularly through the week we would have uh phone calls in to the phone number that we set up for the team basically people saying hey this is gonna be my first hamilton cardinals game i'm so happy hamilton got a baseball team and sometimes they were taken aback to you know when we told them hey this is actually a 65 year old franchise so Um, but it's a good, you know, it's a good problem to have, right. And more people are discovering it and you know, it's lots for us to build on for next year.
1: Well, that was the next thing. So, okay. So you, you end up doing really well this year, I mean, besides winning this award and that's very nice. I'm sure that's a, that's a nice little cherry on the Sunday for you, but I'm pretty sure that's not, you know, what you were after, but how do you then it's, well, I don't want to say it's easy. The, The Cardinals previous ownerships have proven it's not easy, but it is easy ish, I guess to take a big first step with a lot of good ideas. How do you maintain that momentum?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, continuing to nurture what we've been able to build. And that's, again, working with different charities across the city, the baseball associations, our existing sponsors and season ticket holders. You know, we've already had lots of dialogue with them. Um, You know, it sounds like we're going to retain, you know, 90% of everything that we've built. So that's a good foundation. Um, But I think it's, we're just going to continue to amplify it and, continue to expand the brand. And, um, certainly we learned a lot, probably halfway through the year. I didn't really have a good grasp on the marketing probably until mid July. So, um, you know, we're gonna, you know, use those learnings now
1: for a full calendar year, full calendar season. I think it will, uh, will pay off really well for us. When Bob Young bought the Hamilton Ticats, I can't remember the year 2004, 2005, something like that. One of the things he said right off the bat, the team was really not good when, when he took over and he goes, look, we're going to make it a game day experience. So if you come to the games, even if we lose, you're going to go home and say, I had a great time. And I guess that's always the, the gold standard for any franchise that it doesn't matter. You can't predict what the outcome is going to be. So let's make it so it's fun, no matter what. However, there does come a point when people also want to see you win. Now you did a lot more winning this year than we've seen for a while. But does all the other stuff, all the peripheral stuff that went on, does that make it easier to lure players, to sign players, to get players to buy into what Hamilton is doing? Cause that's been a difficulty for a long time.
3: Yeah, it, it really is. Um, we're starting to see it now as we enter our off season, we're getting a lot of, a lot of knocks on our doors, a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of messages on our DM really? on Instagram, uh, on Instagram from other players and, um, Yeah, it certainly has helped, right? The players want to, you know, play in front of an exciting atmosphere. And, um, you know, our our goal is to, you know, be one of the, you know, the the best experience for for the players as well, not just for the fans. So I think we've,
1: you know, we've made a lot of uh, headway with that. I'm, well, maybe I shouldn't be shocked. I'm shocked based on past history that you have people lining up and calling you guys up rather than being pursued. Yeah, you know what? We probably have, we have like
3: i won't i won't I won't say it's daily, but probably every other day we definitely have players from all across the globe, locally but also overseas or from the u s um, that are going onto our website, you know requesting the opportunity to try to chat with our general manager. Um, and like I said, we get it on social media constantly too. so. Um, yeah, general manager, George Helene's got, uh, you know, he's got a lot of work ahead of him to try to figure out, you know, who's going to come into Hamilton next summer.
1: How do people find you guys from around the world? Cause I wouldn't think the inter-county league would be something that people all over the states would know about, but how do they know about it?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think the IBL is definitely considered one of the top, you know, independent leagues, uh, out there, certainly the, you know, the largest, in Canada and the premier baseball league. That's why we call it Canada's best baseball league. Um, but um, yeah, I would kind of say like we're a bit of a system into the MLB affiliated uh, frontier league, which there are a couple Canadian teams in the frontier league. Um, so I think they kind of, you know, view us
1: as a stepping stone to hopefully get into an
3: MLB-affiliated league.
1: That is Eric Spearin. He is the newly crowned Intercounty Baseball League Executive of the Year and uh, looking to build on that. Eric, really appreciate you taking time today. Congratulations! Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Strange story that is been going on today. I, I think it is still going on today. A whole bunch of schools in Northern and Eastern Ontario. And now we're hearing reports into Alberta. Why all of a sudden into Alberta, but bomb threats being called into multiple, multiple schools with, as I understand it, and we'll get uh, some better information from my next guest, uh, demands for payment. I am assuming to not set off the bomb, though no devices, as I understand, have been found. Let me bring in uh, someone who can talk about this, Sawyer Bogdan is a reporter with Global News, Barry. She joins us now. Sawyer, how are you today?
4: I'm good. How are you?
1: I am great. I appreciate you doing this for whatever you can, because as I understand, this story is still moving and we're not really sure what's going on. But what can you tell us? This is a bizarre situation that so many schools all of a sudden are all getting this at like the same time.
4: Yeah. So it seems like um, it started earlier in the morning in some northern reaches of the province and then it to some eastern Ontario schools as well received some bomb threats and then chose not to open schools and then it seems as the days developed uh, more schools uh, across our province have started reporting um, bomb threats OPP have said haven't said how many schools but they have said there are many, and they said it's impacting school boards as far north as the northernmost school boards in Ontario and as far east as the Quebec border. Um, But yeah, it seems just like throughout the day, more and more schools are reporting bomb threats, and then Closing schools as a precaution, though it is important to note that no devices have actually been found. This is all being done out of an abundance of caution um, as more threats come in.
1: Well, and you have to, right? I mean, the, the, here's the, the the part about this. Even if you believe that this is just some wingnut or wingnuts who are doing this as a lark, the second you don't close one of these schools and something bad does happen, it's a just a horrible decision. So you're kind of obligated to do this no matter how many of them are called in,
4: exactly uh, that's right. And honestly, it, it, it little is known at this time. But OPP have said that somebody or someone um, are have created the threats and are demanding money. Um, but at this point, we don't know anything beyond that or how credible the threats are. <laughs>
1: Is there something that I'm, so we had Halloween yesterday, I don't think Halloween, usually devil's night, you know, I'm trying to think of, okay, what's been going on That's the night before Halloween. Is there something that is on the school schedule today? I was wondering about like midterm, I mean, any kind of thing that would all of a sudden people would look at and go, oh, well, that's a reason why this might be happening today. Is there anything like that? You
4: know. It would be hard to say because of the distance of some of the schools being impacted. Um, We've seen posts that some schools in Timmins were closed down, but then you've also got schools a lot closer to Ottawa that are being closed down. So it'd be hard to find a correlation because we know it's stretching across um, school boards across the province right now. Um, so it's really hard to say, but it would be surprising if every single school board had something happening on the exact same day, uh, though that is a possibility.
1: Do we know yet when these were called in? And what I mean by that is we know it's been like throughout the day today or it was today, but if they were all at say 10 in the morning, one person obviously couldn't do all of them at the same time. But if they're spread out between nine and five, it potentially could be one person. Do we know the timing of this?
4: It seems like it has been spread out um, because uh, we're seeing that some school boards in in northern Ontario and the Timmins area posted that they were closing as a precaution earlier in the morning, Um, but then we were receiving reports that schools in eastern Ontario were being evacuated in the early afternoon or late morning. So it does it, it doesn't seem like every single school board was contacted at the exact same time. It does seem to be almost a gradual rollout as people um, as school boards are contacted, we hear of uh, more potential shutdowns as precaution.
1: Now what about this idea of demanding payment? I mean, it's like a ransom demand, but for we don't really know what it's for. Have they told the media or anyone what exactly that's all about?
4: OPP are being very tight-lipped right now, and rightly so. There's not a lot of, in I guess there's a lot of information as the situation develops. Um, but really, the only thing they have said is somebody's demanded payment, and there's been bomb threats. Uh, beyond that, police haven't really released any other details, and we, we really don't even have an idea how many schools are being impacted. Just that it, it seems to be a lot.
1: And finally, we got to run, but um, it, we also see a tweet here from uh, Toronto police operations that even Toronto schools suddenly now, uh, as of two twenty uh, three uh, Kipling Collegiate, Lakeshore Collegiate Institute and Western tech are all reporting bomb threats coming in. So clearly this is, I mean, it started, it sounds in Northern and Eastern Ontario, but now it's kind of everywhere.
4: Yeah, we're not sure at this point if the Toronto bomb threats are, are connected, but it is something we're looking into, um, but it does seem to be very far-reaching.
1: Sawyer Bogdan, who is a uh, reporter with Global News in Barrie, really appreciate the time today, Sawyer. Thanks for doing this.
4: Thank you. Have a good day.
1: Last hour, if you were with us, we were chatting about a new poll from Ipsos about who and how many Canadians were looking at getting their booster or COVID shots. And roughly 40% say, no, not doing it, not interested. And I am not at all surprised by that. However, I fully expect that those in the medical field are going to say those people may want to rethink their position. And I'm guessing, and I don't know this, but I'm guessing that one of those will be Dr. Brendan Liu, who's associate medical officer of health with the city of Hamilton joins us now. Dr. Liu, thank you for this today.
0: Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Uh, more than happy to have you. Glad you're along. Would I be correct that if those people are hesitant, that you would encourage them to rethink the position or give it a second thought?
0: We are definitely recommending that uh, folks get their respiratory vaccines for this season, and that's their their COVID-19 uh, uh, vaccine, as well as their influenza vaccine. And and that's something that's really going to protect people through this uh fall and winter respiratory season where we see uh, all those viruses circulating more uh, than other times of the year. So it really is an important layer of protection that we're strongly recommending and encouraging everyone to, to head out and, and get.
1: What about the people, and you know they're out there, and there's many of them who may have had COVID or had the flu in the last year or two, but COVID in particular, because that was the thing that was drawing all the attention. And they, it wasn't that bad. The symptoms were not that bad and it wasn't all that difficult for them. And they, their answer is, well, you know, if that's what it is, I'll go through that again before I get a shot.
0: Yeah, that's a a really great question and and concern from people. And and we know that having an infection can provide some amount of protection, uh, but we, we find that that protection actually is, is only for uh, a relatively short period of time after you've received uh, that, that infection. Um, we have no way of knowing exactly what sort of effects that a another infection might have, even if a, a past infection uh, might have been mild or manageable for for somebody. Uh, that's not to say that if they were to get an infection again, that it wouldn't be far more uh, severe, and and they may pass it on to somebody else that that might be um, more vulnerable or at high risk of having uh, a very severe uh, outcome related to to COVID nineteen, and so. I think that that's definitely something that people need to be considering and thinking about when they're making the decision about about heading out to get those uh, COVID-19 as well as influenza vaccines this, this fall.
1: What is the city doing and city health, what are you doing as far as The most vulnerable, at least who we saw during COVID was long-term care facilities and hospitals, things like that. Is there something different being done with them than to the general population where you're saying, please come and get your shot from us. Are you preemptively going to those places?
0: So all through the month of October, uh, we have really been prioritizing that those highest risk uh, people, those people who are older, people who are living in congregate living settings like long-term care and retirement homes, people who may have medical conditions, as well as healthcare workers, and uh, providing those vaccines through our clinics, as well as supporting vaccination in places like hospitals, as well as those sorts of facilities. That work is gonna absolutely continue. But as of this past Monday, the COVID-19 uh, vaccine as well as the influenza vaccine are available to all uh, the general public. And so we we do recommend that all of those over the age of six months old uh, get both of those vaccines for, for this season, especially as we head into the winter months where people are going to be in close quarters and, and spending time with a lot of other people.
1: Maybe doctor, maybe people don't take up this discussion with you. I don't know because they know you're a doctor and they maybe feel they're going to lose this one or whatever, but do you still hear from people who say, I'm not sure about the safety of the vaccine?
0: I think that there's, there's all sorts of of reasons why somebody, um, made, uh, not have an immediate plan to go get vaccinated. It may be that they have concerns about about safety. And and we definitely continue to find evidence that these vaccines are very, very safe and they're very effective. and, And the benefits and protection that they offer far outweigh the risks and side effects that we see related to these vaccines. I think that just as much as people that might be concerned about the safety, though, I think it may just not be at the front of the mind for people. People uh, might not be aware that they're out there and available or, or just not be thinking that now is the time of the season to get out and, and get it. And, and that's one of the things I really want to emphasize today is that now is the time. It's, it's out and available for the general population, whether that's through a pharmacy, whether that's through your uh, family doctor, whether that's through a public health clinic. Uh, and, and now is the time to head out and get those vaccines and, and really to encourage those people in your life, especially who might be higher risk, might be older, might have medical conditions, uh, that they uh, should be heading out to get those vaccines as well.
1: I understand that, uh, you would suggest clearly to get both, but if somebody said, well, you know what, uh, for whatever reason, I'm just not comfortable with one of them. Is it, is there value still in getting one of the two?
0: Absolutely, we certainly recommend and, and have uh, data to say that getting um, both the uh, COVID nineteen and flu vaccines together is is safe, and we we do recommend that co-administration. Um, but I I would say that if if uh, there's concerns about that, definitely talk to a trusted healthcare professional. Uh, and and either vaccine is going to provide some protection against against flu or or COVID nineteen, depending on which vaccine you get. So. Um, Two is two is the best, but uh, but if uh, somebody decides to get one, I would definitely still strongly encourage them to get that vaccine.
1: And last thing, do you know does the city have any um, estimate of what you expect as far as uptake percentage wise? I mean, hundred percent. I'm sure you would say it would be fantastic, but realistically, do you have a number in mind that you hope would take this? Well, I would definitely we're recommending
0: encouraging all of those who are eligible, so those over the age of six months, to head out and get those vaccines. We, we've we seen that through uh, October that we had over 23,000 COVID-19 vaccines uh, administered in, in Hamilton, and, and that was really just to those highest risk groups. And so I think now that uh, it's open to, to everyone in the general population, we're really hoping that... Uh, that uh, is just going to accelerate and continue more and, and that we'll see a, a great uptake uh, for this season. So as I said, now is the, the time uh, and we're really uh, calling all folks to to make a plan to get vaccinated and to make a plan with the people in their lives who might be at higher risk of having some of these severe outcomes to make sure they get are able to get vaccinated as well.
1: Uh, Dr. Brendan Liu, Associate Medical Officer of Health for Hamilton, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for this.
0: Thanks so much for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's
5: talk. 900 CHML.
1: Canadians clearly have shown, even recently, that they support the idea of immigration. But Canadians right now, again, according to the numbers, are having concerns about the numbers. Not the idea of immigration, just how many. Well. Part of this may be bolstered by some new numbers that are out, according to a study by the Institute for Canadian Citizenship and the Conference Board of Canada, that those who have come here and then left is up 31% between 2017 and 19 above the historical average. And that's before our immigration numbers went way, way, way up even further. So I think maybe. I'm not going to guess, but maybe we might see those numbers be up even higher next time this polling is done. But here, let me read you uh, from the study. Canada's future prosperity depends on immigration because these people who are coming here are going to be the workers, the taxpayers, those who help prop up the system and keep it operating. So what happens when they leave? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee. He's associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us now. Dr. Lee, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. This is, I mean, this is the, the, m- mechanism or the theory of immigration that as people come here, they incorporate themselves into Canada, they take jobs, they eventually buy a home, they become Canadians and they contribute to the system and they become the ones paying taxes who help with the pension plans and with the medical care. But if all of a sudden, all those things that we're talking about gets plucked back out of the system, that's a problem. I,
5: I do agree. And I am one of those Canadians that have uh, supported immigration all my life. I still do, by the way. And as you put it, we support the idea. We uh, It's absolutely necessary. But I think there's an increasing number of Canadians and I'm one of them. Uh, that uh, think that the numbers are too high, and they're not. That's that number is not sustainable. I've come to that conclusion because of my very extensive research on housing, and there's just not enough houses for uh, all the people here, let alone the people coming in, the very large numbers coming in. And that points to the second the the issue you brought up today, which is, I mean, you're implicitly saying, why are people so many people exiting Canada after they've emigrated here? I don't have hard data. I Believe me, I searched. I looked because oh, I'm a data guy. I wanted to find some data. I couldn't find any hard studies on this. But we have a lot of, pardon the academic language, but we have a lot of proxy data. So proxy data is a data, a data point that doesn't show what you want, but it's nearby, so to speak. So you can look at the things like housing shortages for immigrants and say, well, that's a proxy for measuring how happy they are. Because if there's large numbers of immigrants that can't find decent housing, we can assume legitimately that they'll be unhappy. Ergo, housing shortages are a proxy measure for um, uh, uh, immigrants and and their satisfaction or dissatisfaction that would cause them to, to leave. I mean, I know that some purists would say, well, that's not you know good enough proxy. Great. Until we get better data. That have exit interviews, so you know a survey of uh, immigrants that have left, like a poll, essentially a very uh, specialized public opinion poll that surveys um, uh, people that have left to find out why they've left. But I would think that housing or lack of housing is high on the list, and I would suggest to you also high on the list is the well. Let me just back up for a moment, Scott, and and put a big picture statement. Sure. People who would be exiting, that the immigrants that come here and then leave, I mean, permanently leave to go somewhere else, they are the people who are most mobile They're because if you don't have a lot of skills or a lot of um, points, <laughs> to use the immigration jargon, um, that would qualify you to go to another country, you won't be able to go to another country. We all know what we're talking about. We're talking about the United States. It's right next door. And to get to emigrate to the States, it's very, very difficult and it's very, very easy. What I mean by that, obviously, seemingly contradictory statement, is if you have great skills, um, you know, you're a, a computer scientist, this is a software programmer with a master's degree or something like that, you're not going to have any difficulty moving there. But if you're you have very low levels of skills and so you're a minimum wage worker you're going to find it very, very difficult to get a green card. Very difficult. I think everybody understands that intuitively, if not empirically. Uh, I've certainly looked at the data and there's a very strong bias in the American immigration system, as there is ours, towards people that have a lot of skills. So the people who are re-immigrating, if I can use that word, coming to Canada and then deciding, okay, not good enough here. I'm going, I'm checking out. I'm suggesting uh I'm theorizing that that these are people with very big strong skill sets, engineers, you know, mathematicians, physicists, computer scientists, for which there's a very strong demand in the states. And they are saying, you know, um, they're not recognizing my skills here all the time, and I can't get good housing, and I've got a great job offered to go to the states. I'm out of here. I suspect that one day, and there will be a study done by the government at some point, or some academic somewhere will do a study of why people are leaving Canada. And I think we're going to find it's A, people that are highly skilled and thus mobile. That is to say, they've got the skill sets to go somewhere else. They have choices. And secondly, dissatisfaction with what's on offer here in Canada. Maybe their spouse didn't get recognized because they're a nurse or they're a doctor because we have been negligent. I want to be very blunt. We have been negligent in our country saying, the The skills of immigrants who come here. I mean, it's just a shame, It's shameful that we don't recognize engineering degrees mm. almost as, uh, instantaneously once you determine that it's from a legitimate university. Well, it's and likewise doctor, medical.
1: and doctor Lee, what you're describing though is, and this goes to the point that if the if if we are welcoming all these people, and again, we we got to keep emphasizing this: this is not an anti-immigrant screed. I say Correct. that every time we talk Correct. about this. But if if the people we are bringing If we are then seeing great numbers leaving and they are the ones who have either the skills or the money, that means that the people who are staying are the ones potentially who don't have those things, which will not necessarily, at least right away, contribute to the economy the way that those people might have. Correct?
5: Very well put. Yes. Very well put. Let me be more blunt. Um, and and I'm, I know there'll be some people that are offended because we, you know, some Canadians pretend that we're all equal and there's no differences between one person and the next. There's no hierarchies. And I just think that's, that's delusional, uh, you know, Walt Disney at Disneyland. Of course, there's hierarchies, you know, a person with an engineering degree and PhD in engineering makes more than a person who doesn't, hasn't gone to university. I mean, this is so obvious. We shouldn't even be having this conversation, not you and me, but that the people make that claim. So where am I going with this? The people that are at re-emigrating, if I can use that word, uh, leaving Canada, who are immigrants, are the people with the greatest skills, who are the great and greatest demand. And let me be more blunt: they're the most valuable. That's why they're able to leave, because they are so valuable. They are precisely the people we least want to lose. So we're losing people that are really, really.
1: Well, and you could say that that, and we've got to run, we've got to run, but you could say that for not even immigrant people, you could say that for, you know, if Dr. Lee decides he's going to move down to the States and go work at Harvard, we've lost someone who is, you know, someone that we want to keep in this country and and name it for anybody else. I just chose your name, but, but yeah, Yeah. it it doesn't have to be an immigrant thing. We, to keep the economy going. Yes. We need Yes.
5: I'll be very quick because I'm running out yes. of time. Uh, there are studies we have uh, people don't realize one of the largest immigrant groups in the United States. I saw a wonderful study a few years ago. Canadians. Mm. There's something like 50 million Canadians. Now that's defined as a first or second generation. So someone born here or they moved there and they have children there, but they're still they classify them with this methodology the, uh, as Canadians. The point is there is a we've lost over the last hundred years, lost a lot of highly trained, highly educated Canadians have moved to the States. We've lost a lot of doctors. Uh, you know, we've lost a lot of engineers who've gone to Silicon Valley. So we've got to create a more hospitable uh, economy and society that, that will... Uh, ent- People to stay here and you know, very high tax rates, which drive them into the States where they're paying much lower taxes is not the way to keep these highly valuable, highly skilled people here in Canada.
1: Got to run. Unfortunately, Dr. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Always appreciate it. Thank you.
5: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening
0: to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Every home, every piece of property as everybody out there knows is getting more expensive. If you don't believe it, where have you been? (laughs) Just go look at real estate prices. You know, everything is more expensive. However, one thing is really skyrocketing that we don't think about all that often. And that is farmland. Farmland, Ontario farmland is set to hit an average price of $30,000 an acre. That is double almost the value over the course of a decade. Ryan Parker is a partner in the agriculture division of Valco Consultants in London, Ontario. joins us now. Ryan, thank you for this today.
6: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: So why, I mean, look, be, besides the blatantly obvious, as I just said, because everything is getting more expensive. I get that. Why farm? Why is it going up so fast?
6: See, so yeah, I think the specific drivers on farmland, right? A lot of it has to do with, uh, a lot of it has to do with production and uh, and value of crops, right? So we've had uh, we've had two or three really good years in a row here as far as prices go, and a lot of those price drivers are, are really out of our control here locally. Um, a lot of those things are driven by, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and, and those types of things. Um, and we benefit from you know something we benefit here from in Ontario uh, is always we always get lots of rain, right? We have uh, the benefit of the Great Lakes that are always helping us out that way. Uh, and we have a lot of really good producers that. Uh, do a really good job. I mean, the other thing too, in the last 10 or 15 years, that has been a big benefit to agriculture has been low interest rates. Um, you know, with the value of farms, um, you know, leverage is obviously required to be able to expand and be able to buy those farms. Um, and so the cheaper money that we've seen for the majority of the last 10 or 15 years, um, has been a real benefit to expansion. Um, obviously with, with interest rates going up here recently, there's, there's maybe some headwinds there. Um, but there's no doubt in the last couple of years with good prices uh, and good yields uh, and good livestock prices as well, uh, farmers have continued to expand.
1: One of the things that you did not say there, and I think a lot of people would be very surprised because we have been hearing about urban expansion for months and months and months and months now. Reading about this today, you don't necessarily point to the encroaching urban growth as one of the biggest drivers of this, as I understand it.
6: Yeah, and I think specifically it depends where you're speaking, right? So, you know, the, my general territory, right, would be southwestern Ontario. So let's say, you know, Lake Erie to, to Georgian Bay and west of, of KW Guelph. Um, and so in that area there, the majority of the buyers are farmers. There is some investor action. There is, of course, some urban influence from larger centers like London or Chatham or, or Kitchener-Waterloo or that type of thing. But by and large, when I, when I talk about farmland, um, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, farms that don't have any kind of development or aren't close to the city. But of course, on the other side of that equation, yeah, all these all these buffer areas or whatever you like to call them around, around the cities in southwestern Ontario, you know, they continue to push out into prime agricultural areas. Uh, and you get buyers who are not farmers buying land. Um, and those areas definitely continue to get bigger. And that's why when we really go east of KW Guelph, Hamilton, when we go east of there, um, you know, there's a lot of that now that I would say is 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 probably out of the hands of farmers, right? And a lot of that's getting bought by by non-farmers for sure.
1: What would be the? And I have no idea about this, Ryan. This shows you how much time I don't spend on a farm. What's the average size of a working farm in Ontario now? How many What's acres? A, a-
7: that's a
6: good question. Just be a guess from my side. Sure. I mean, uh, the stats can would have that. Now there's there's the average, you know, there's a lot of farmers out there. So myself, I'm a farmer, you know, I've got 20 cows and, and 150 acres and that would be extremely small, right? And that is that's my part-time, my part-time gig. But if we were talking about, you know, active full-time farmers, um, you know, the majority of those farms would be 500 acres plus.
1: Okay, so... Uh,
6: now, that may, that may not all be owned, but that would be general size of full-time, most full-time farmers.
1: And the reason I asked that question, in addition to being interested, is who can afford then, if that farmer gives up the business or dies in or the, the family takes over and wants to get rid of it, even if other farmers wanted to keep that land, that's $15 million based on a $30,000 an acre cost? Who can afford to walk in as a farmer and say, here's $15 million for me just to start up a new farm? That doesn't even make sense to me.
6: Right. So one of the things that I work on a lot uh, and a lot of other advisors who, who concentrate on agriculture, you know, we're a lot of our focus is on succession planning, right? And being able to, to uh, plan to have that farm go from one generation to the next, right? And so in those cases where we do have next generation, you know, it takes um, it takes a lot of good advice and a lot of long-term planning to be able to make that happen, because the cash flow typically doesn't meet uh, meet the equity or security requirements of buying that farm. So in that case, you know, there's 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 a lot of different moving pieces. Um, if a farm doesn't have a succession plan, there is no next generation. You know, then and we have a farmer buying. You know, it's a farmer who is typically significantly larger than that holding that they're buying. Um, have existing cash flow and existing equity built over a long period of time, usually multi-generational, that are buying those next farms.
1: So wh- what about the idea, though, of pure investors? Are we seeing, m- when, when a farm does go up for sale, is it largely a, f- a farmer who's doing it, or are it corporations and, and, and speculators?
6: And again, if we're speaking about, uh, you know, we're speaking with Southwestern Ontario in general, we're talking about, say, true farm farm areas right. where we don't have we don't have say just urban random urban investment um, the majority of the time yes it would be farmers who are buying now we do have you know we have had since about that 0809 crash you know there's definitely been more focus from the investment side um, on to agriculture and so we do have a certain element and, and depends on the county I mean there's certain counties that have more focus on them from the investor side than others um, but for the most part um, it's farmers who are buying, and especially once you get to the upper tier. So when we see, you know, land 30, 40, 50,000 bucks an acre, you know, usually the returns there for an investor on the cash, cash rent return is not that great. So typically in those areas, you see majority of them are farmers.
1: Mm. Ryan Parker, I wish we had more time. It's a really interesting topic. Uh, Ryan Parker, partner in the agriculture division at Valco Consultants. Really appreciate you doing this. Thank you.
6: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Was Rush ever at MuchMusic? They were shown on MuchMusic, but they're a Canadian band. Did Rush ever make it into the MuchMusic environment and, you know, sit down with Erica M for a conversation about Neil Peart's drumming or something? I have no idea. But maybe on Saturday, if you head down to first Ontario concert hall, you can watch a screening of 299 Queen Street West, which is about the history of much music, its rise and eventual sad demise. Uh, this documentary was put together, directed by a Hamilton guy, Sean Menard, who joins us now. Sean, how are you? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing, bro? I, I, I am great. So do you know the answer to that question? Did Rush, did Getty, and Neil and, and Alex ever walk into the much environment and, you know, sit down and have one of those conversations?
7: Ah, you're putting me on the spot, man. There was a lot of footage (laughs) for 30 years. I, I will say this. I do remember Getty Lee being at the launch night, not myself, just from looking at the footage and it's in the film,
1: when they... First, announced that Much Music was going to be a television station. So he was in the building for that. Okay. So, the, well, there's the answer. So there you go. Uh, if there is anybody, uh, I don't know, honestly, that having sat through all the footage that you did to make this documentary, I don't know that there would be anybody, including the people who worked there, who would be more familiar with who was and wasn't, had much music. You have watched an awful lot of hours of this.
7: I have. And it seemed like pretty much any major musician of the last 30 years had some form of presence, whether it was uh, getting their music videos played a ton or they were actually there at 299 Queen Street West. It was pretty incredible.
1: It's so interesting talking about this now, because I I don't know what the dividing line is. Maybe you've got a theory, but for a certain age group, they aren't going to understand the concept of sitting in front of your TV, racing home from school to sit in front of your TV and wait for a video to come on of your favorite band that may or may not ever come on because we're used to on demand now. But that many people listening on the other hand are saying, yeah, I remember doing that exactly. That was a huge thing back in the eighties and nineties.
7: It was. And I'll even go one step further. Something that was fascinating to me was watching the VJs through that footage and watching them read requests live on the air, so people physically sat down, wrote a video that they wanted to see on a letter, mailed it, and then I would assume they would just tune in every day in hopes that it was going to be read. And play. that always blew my mind. Um, but it was a it was a generation of patience, I suppose. Yeah,
1: and it's not that long ago. That's the amazing thing. Really, no, it's not
7: that long yeah. ago. No, it wasn't. I mean this this was happening right right into the end of the '90s, even. Uh, before the uh, the birth of, and the rise of the internet and of course YouTube coming along and, and no longer do people have to wait.
1: Uh, all of this and, and many other things are caught up in this movie. I got a chance to see it when you had your premiere at Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto. Uh, happened to be the same night Zelensky was in Toronto. Almost couldn't get through the security to get there, not far away. But anyway, uh, it was a fantastic, it's a fantastic documentary and even the response from people who were there, it is clear from the 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 well, just the fact that so many people had such a warm reaction—it's clear how many people much music mattered to.
7: It it does. I mean, we just got off the, the East Coast, and I'm I'm just actually in Calgary now, getting ready for our show tonight. And it's just different when there's a, a theater full of people watching it, and then getting to meet the VJs afterwards. And we're doing these uh, intimate, interactive shows after the film to give even more context, and they've been great. It's just. um yeah, it, just, it, it hit so many different people and so many generations. The thing that, that stood out to me the most, though, is, is seeing that uh, some people that grew up with it are now bringing their teenagers out to watch it. So you have modern-day teenagers watching teenagers from the 80s and 90s, pre-cell phones, locked into these big moments, and they're loving it, and they know who the artists are. And that was something that I um, maybe was always hoping for but certainly wasn't anticipating on this tour.
1: Have you been surprised at, because I think you you probably felt this way, but have you been surprised by how many people still look to these VJs as celebrities?
7: I haven't been surprised, surprised. I feel that more people almost forgot about them, in a sense, because they've been off the air. But they've really did an incredible job at connecting with the audience. Um, they, you know, I, I didn't realize how groundbreaking the journalism really was being able to get these larger than life musicians, some of the biggest stars in the world to just be themselves and be at ease. And it's a Testament to these VJs. Um, But there's definitely no love lost through the years and, and seeing the reactions of the crowds every night and
1: being able to get on stage and introduce them uh, to come on up has been, uh, it's, it's been an honor. It's been uh, really put, cool. I'll put you on a spot because this is a totally unfair question, but w- which of the VJs has got the biggest reaction from the crowd?
7: Oh man, where this is playing in Hamilton, you know, Rick Campanelli, homegrown. All right. Well, uh, okay. That's, <laughs> that's a very, left, left. that's a very political answer. Show. Yes. Well, he's at every show. Yes. And, and, and what's interesting about Rick is that he started off the first 10 years, just simply being a fan at home, watching every day. Then he won a contest, became the temp, a nickname that stuck with him for the rest of his life. And then he got to be on the air himself for 10 years. So when I announced the tour and I was trying to figure out everyone's availability, I mean, we're at 14 shows across the country and Rick said, I'll be at every single one. And he has, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, the crowds have been loving him and, Uh, across the board, all the other VJs have been getting great ovations. It's been really special.
1: It is. uh, As I said, I I have seen the movie. I'm going to, uh, I'm hoping to get there again on Saturday, but I've seen it. It's a, it's a terrific movie. I mean, it really is. And even the one thing that I did not realize, because when I went to it to see it the first time, I thought, oh, this is just going to be a whole lot of clips about much music, which it is. There's a lot of that if you're looking for nostalgia, but I didn't, I didn't somehow realize, maybe because I got to a point where I aged out or something, how much music had sort of just ended, or that time frame sort of died off, and it it almost became a very emotional thing at the end.
7: Yeah, it, it does because it's you know there there's nothing really like it that exists anymore, and there seems to be a blueprint for how they were really much trendsetters. And somehow we've gotten away from that in this country and in our television programming or just in general, having algorithms telling us what music we want to listen to. It's more sterile. That was the, yeah, it was the magic be able to sit down, throw on the TV, and you didn't know what you were going to hear or see next. And I just tried to create that with this film of what that experience was like, sitting down, watching much music, um, while also telling the journey of where music in the industry went from the 80s all the way to the early 2000s.
1: Well, I, I would encourage, and I'm, uh, for the record, I'm not being paid for this in w- any way at all, but I would encourage people, if you are interested in a great movie, a great two hours for a Saturday night to head down, you can get the tickets online at 299queenstreetwest.com, I think is the address, the website, but uh, go down to First Ontario Concert Hall and it is, uh, it is worth your time for sure. Uh, the director is Sean Minard is a Hamilton guy. So yeah, another reason altogether, but uh, Sean, really appreciate you doing this.
7: Oh, my pleasure. And I can't wait to be gracing the stage at Hamilton Place. First movie that's ever done in 50 years. So I, I heard really, that. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. Uh, 299 QueenStreetWest.com. Sean, thank you. Appreciate it.
2: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton
0: Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk 900 criminal.
1: Every once in a while, Hell's Angels or other criminal enterprise like that, bike gangs pop up into our discussion, but you know, they've kind of become after, um, uh, Sons of Anarchy on TV and, and then the Mayans, you know, it's kind of become, I don't think we think of them, Hells Angels and others, the way we used to, but you know what? It's, um, well, CTV News Toronto would suggest that whether you think of them the way you once did or not, you should be thinking about them. CTV News Toronto has uh, found, has received court documents that there are allegations in there that say that Hells Angels, among other things, have been running, they were running, Uh, a underground betting operation. And as a result, got $160 million out of that, which has gone into all kinds of things, including land and property purchases all over the place. Want to bring in Sean Sparling. He's a retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie police. Currently the president of investigative solutions network joins us now. Sean, thank you for this.
8: Yeah. Thanks for the invite.
1: You know, as I was thinking about this, it almost seems that pop culture has sanitized or made the whole bike gang thing seemed like almost quaint. Like, yeah, you know what? Once upon a time we were terrified of it. Now it almost sounds sometimes like, you know, oh, those guys are pretty good guys. They just, they ride around and yeah, they occasionally do some bad stuff, but look, look at the guys on TV. They're kind of nice. I'd like to hang out with them. Not quite the reality.
8: No, oh, it's absolutely not. They're a criminal organization and they always have been.
1: The numbers though, that we're talking about here. Cause I don't think a lot of people think of them I'm sure they think of them as a criminal organization, but I don't think if, I don't think they think of them in terms of $160 million in one betting operation, that's an enormous amount of money.
8: Yeah, sure it is. They're very organized. Um, they're uh, like financially, they're no different than other uh, traditional organized crime, such as uh, the mafia and whatnot. You just look at the stuff they've been involved with, they're involved uh, heavily in the money laundering and the casinos out in uh, British Columbia. They're involved in uh, corrupting the construction industry in Quebec, and now you have the uh, uh, gambling in Ontario. It's uh, it's their true colors. They're they're a criminal organization.
1: But there is—I don't want to be sounding complimentary here—but there is some brain power involved in organizing like this that could be this successful at what you're doing. This is
8: there is some thought behind this. Absolutely. Yeah. these organizations are very uh, sophisticated. Um, the uh, they look. To employ uh, to technology and whatnot, same as any other industry, and they're they're very organized. So it's not surprising that they're doing this. They've been doing it for many years. The the story that uh,
1: according to these court documents, and these are allegations right now, but uh, according to these documents, there were a number of properties that were purchased, seven properties around southern Ontario. Uh, that were used this, I'm guessing is going to be to launder the money. You put the money in here and then you can resell it later. I I guess that's what was going to happen with it. But it, again, it seems like it's far more, um, legitimate sounding than I think a lot of people would think of for bikers.
8: Uh, maybe that's the way it sounds, but certainly they've been at this for, for a long time. This is not new to them. And the idea is to get the money into legitimate markets and legitimize the money. But at the end of the day, it's still mean, uh, gotten from illegal gains. The same article talked about using violence to uh, to collect on debts. Mm. It's not too many years ago, the banditos down around London murdered eight people uh, in one, one event. So they're a very violent, organized criminal gang. If we've got,
1: If this story is talking about seven properties and these are not like, you know, small houses necessarily, these are larger properties. If we've got seven of these that are being purchased in this one operation, would we be surprised at how many properties or how much other things that look legitimate there are, that are tied into organized crime, whether it's Hells Angels or otherwise?
8: Oh, absolutely. The resources just aren't out there to go after it all. And and again, the same article mentioned that there are uh, that they, uh, they're able to arrest just two full patch members of the Hell's Angels that were responsible for this at the top of the pyramid. There's uh, there's dozens and dozens of uh, patch uh, Hell's Angels members in Canada. So this is uh, this is just a tip of the iceberg.
1: It was not that long ago uh, here in Hamilton, we had, well, maybe 10 years ago, I don't know, maybe even a little more than that. And, and I'm sure it's still going on, but it wasn't that long ago that we had a rash of grow ops. Now I know cannabis has been legalized, which has probably changed things a little bit. But every time one of those grow-ups was busted, I always used to think, is that someone who just used their home to do this? Or is that more than likely something behind that person? Are, are most of those things, if you do hear about a grow-up or some sort of operation like that, is it usually just an independent person who's decided to try it themselves? Or is there usually something more behind it? The,
8: uh, the small uh, grow ops were typically just independent people or some small loose organization. But certainly, organized crime—I've um, seen before with Asian organized crime as well as bikers—involved more sophisticated operations, and they were uh, they were supplying the illegal market in Canada, the resale market, the commercial resale market. Legitimate uh, stores were buying from the government, and the illegitimate stores were buying from mostly from bikers.
1: Is there any way that police are ever going to catch up and get ahead of this, or is it always going to be chasing from behind, as you say, simply because the resources aren't there to get ahead of it?
8: Criminal elements have always existed, and I suspect they'll always be here in some form or another. So it's uh, it's always going to be a check and balance between uh, police and organized crime. Uh, the police can do it, and they've done very large, successful projects, but there's always uh, just a little bit of lack of a resource to uh, go after this in, uh, in the way it should be. It is.
1: Uh, it's an interesting story for sure. Uh, Sean Sparling, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently president of Investigative Solutions Network. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate this.
8: Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thanks for
0: listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from three to six on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.